0: You are listening to When Diplomacy Fails, which is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. The Agora Podcast Network contains a load of podcasts just like mine, which look into different issues and debates throughout not necessarily just history, but other issues as well. So if you'd like to find out more about the treasure trove of podcasts waiting for you in the Agora Podcast Network, by all means, search them out. This month, as is the custom of the Agora Podcast Network, we have a certain podcast that we select for the podcast of the month, in which we kind of, in which we try to cross-promote him or her as much as is possible. This month, for the month of May, we are promoting Royfield Brown. Because Royfield Brown has so many podcasts, it's kind of hard to just say one or the other. So basically, if you'd like to search for Royfield Brown in iTunes or any other good podcatcher, He'll be introduced to his vast array of projects, which includes such works as How Jamaica Conquered the World and Ten American Presidents, among many others. That again, Royfield Brown, so check him out, you won't regret it. With that note out of the way, please enjoy this next installment of the 1916 special miniseries. In our last loaded episode, we left on something of a turning point in Irish history. Having managed to get the 1911 Parliament Act approved by the House of Commons and Lords following much intrigue and electoral pressure, Prime Minister Herbert Asquith was probably feeling quite good about himself by the time 1912 rolled around. Unfortunately for Asquith though, Ireland was not to stay calm for long. Preempting the fact that a bypassed House of Lords and a cooperative Liberal Party could very likely lead to Home Rule by 1914, elements within the island of Ireland that wanted to maintain the link to Britain at all costs, the Unionists, began agitating for a solution of their own to the problem. A covenant was signed, pledging all that signed it to act to oppose the incoming Home Rule Bill. Following this action, Unionist militias within the north of the island began to group together in the name of opposing the implementation of Home Rule by force, if necessary. Faced with this blow to the democratic process, it was far harder in the south for Cammerheads to prevail, as Irish nationalist elements either didn't want to know about the Unionist concerns or believed that compromise should come first. Before long, though, the belief was put forward, best captured by Owen MacNeill, an Irish history and language teacher, as well as a newspaper editor, that Nationalists should form their own military grouping, to oppose the groupings of the Unionists, and ensure that Home Rule finally came about. Call it what you want, leverage, insurance, or cynicism, but the fact was, by early 1914, Ireland possessed two armed camps, growing more restless by the day, while the British administration seemed altogether powerless to contain them. Unless they acted soon, civil war, one which would rip through not just Ireland, but the British Isles, seemed certain. This is the situation we must untangle in this episode. Welcome to the miniseries. When Diplomacy Fails presents. 1916. A special centenary mini series exploring the context, characters, and controversies of the most significant act in Ireland's modern history the 1916 Rising. If you remove the English army tomorrow and hoist the green flag over Dublin Castle, unless you set about the organisation of the Socialist Republic, your efforts will be in vain. James Connolly, writing in Socialism and Nationalism, a monthly Republican magazine, 1897. What a teacher should bring to his pupils is not a set of ready-made opinions or a stock of cut and dry information, but an inspiration and an example. And his main qualifications should be, not such an overmastering will, as shall impose itself at all hazards upon all weaker wills that come under its influence, but rather so infectious an enthusiasm, as shall kindle new enthusiasm. Patrick Pierce, writing on the importance of proper education, 1913. There can be no such thing as equality, for if you are not top dog, she will be. Unionist MP James Craig, writing on Catholic-Protestant relations, early 1912. In April 1912, when the Titanic pulled into Cove, County Cork, on Ireland's southwest coast. Following its construction in Belfast's shipyards only a year earlier, the region's newspaper, Cork Examiner, noted that the ship possessed all the advantages of the finest hotel, the desired comfort of home, the privacy of study in a fascinating marine setting. Safety is a first consideration with all voyagers, and no excellence, in other ways, can compensate for any lack of it. The Titanic is the last word in this respect. Double bottom and watertight compartments, steel decks, massive steel plates, all in their way making for security, safety, and strength all classes of passengers, share equally in the benefits derivable, and the security of one could not be achieved to the detriment of another mere days after this report, it would have to be awkwardly and tragically acknowledged that the Titanic had sunk. Similarly, would it have to be awkwardly acknowledged, following the lashings of positive nationalist press in light of the news of the 1911 Parliament Act and the liberal promises to enact home rule, that Ireland's future would be at the bottom of the sea as well, unless her unionist elements could be properly and appropriately dealt with. The Unionist party led by Sir Edward Carson seemed to have made its unified opposition clear to any notion of a parliament being held in Dublin, and with this opposition the creation of the Ulster Volunteer Force seemed only logical. Underneath the surface though, Carson dealt with the regularly occurring debates and differences among the Unionist party that threatened to pull the entire movement apart. A common enemy and cause The Catholic, for the most part, Nationalist, and fear of an all-Catholic parliament, had seen their forces bind together, but Unionists could be just as factionalist and bitter in their inter-party squabbles as we've seen the Nationalists be. For some Unionists it was an issue of ideology. Some despaired at the extremist tone that the rhetoric of their leaders were utilising, as well as the rampant bigotry of organisations like the Orange Order which kept old anti-Catholic memories alive. For others, class and wealth were the stress points. Ulster, just like the rest of Ireland, was a region awash with economic and societal change. On the one hand, the massive shipyards pointed to an industrial powerhouse, which numerous wealthy magnates sought to cultivate, while on the other, a rural element of landowners remained that wished to hold on to their heritage. Some Unionists wished to hold on to all of Ireland and speak for all of its Unionists, others advocated a partition solution whereby Ulster would remain a part of the United Kingdom and the remainder of Ireland would receive the Dublin Parliament she so desired. Some Unionists did desire autonomy, while some others remained staunchly in favour of the status quo. As we clarified in the last episode, the official policy of Sir Edward Carson was the status quo. He would not debate from a position of wanting partition, since that would be admitting a loss from the start. Instead, he would debate from the position of wanting everything to stay the same, and for the good old days of the Protestant ascendancy to never end. At least, that's how the likes of John Redmond saw it. The Unionist leadership could be accused, and many historians have accused them of being, by this point, Aged, out of touch, domineering, autocratic, contradictory and narrow-minded. It was the need for fresh blood at the helm of the ailing movement that saw Carson be inaugurated as leader in 1910, while the recognised need in preventing the movement from imploding saw the formation of an Ulster Unionist council in 1905 to control the transition of unionism into a 20th century ideology that all could identify with. Unionist MPs over the years had risen to prominence in the 1880s and 90s, mostly out of their debates against the Home Rule Bills that William Gladstone threw their way. But this did not suggest that Unionists would not splinter off into warring camps with their own petty squabbles from time to time. Just like the split in the Irish Parliamentary Party, after Charles Stuart Parnell in the 1890s had been so bitter, so too could an undercurrent of tensions among apparent ideological allies, threatened to rip Unionism apart. Obviously, those at the top of the orange pole wanted to avoid this, since divided, a multitude of warring Unionist factions could never mobilize or organize as effectively. Still, even with the threat posed to the Unionist way of life by home rule, threats that ranged from the fear that Arden would become more Catholicized, to that these Catholics would take revenge to the rural Irish not being able to rule industrial areas properly, it required a special type of character to make unionism's various strands come together as one. Edward Carson had succeeded in emphasising the threat that home rule posed to unionism in Ireland, but it would be wrong to assume that he wholeheartedly approved of the militarisation of the question that came with the formation of groups like the Ulster Volunteer Force. It is a point often forgotten today that groups like Carson's often worked the same way as groups like John Redmond's Irish Parliamentary Party. In other words, varying levels of extremism existed throughout it. Many of these elements pushed certain members away from one another, but unless irreconcilable differences or personalities clashed, the parties rarely split owing to the burdens it would create. What this meant was that you could have very radical Unionists on the one hand, with a very moderate Unionist on the other. The same was true for the Nationalists, where on the one hand in the Irish Parliamentary Party you could have someone like Patrick Pearce, who up until roughly 1914 was a constitutional nationalist with some extremely out-there ideas, and on the other you had John Redmond himself, a Parliamentarian in the strongest sense, an admirer of the British Empire and a hater of all things Fenian. I clarify this so that we don't fall into the trap of tarring everyone with the same brush. I know it is helpful and an often utilized tool of the historian to generalize when he refers to groups and ideologies, but still, bear in mind that yawning gaps did at times exist between colleagues on all sides of the fence, especially, as we'll come to discover, in the more militant groups. This clarification is also important for us, because It enables me to segue into an important fact about the period, that just because Unionists had the Ulster Volunteer Force, and Nationalists had the Irish Volunteer Force, and that these two groups were apparently gearing up for something, it did not mean that all MPs or members within those parties supported the new militaristic path Irish politics seemed to be travelling down. Many Unionist magnates were appalled at the spectacle of the supporters of the party marching and drilling with guns. Many more Unionists still feared the spectacle that would ensue if Britain called their bluff and sought to disarm the UVF, possibly by force. Would the Ulster Volunteer Force fight their British cousins, in the hopes that that same cousin would still want them at the dinner table afterwards? An undercurrent of militarism existed in the Unionist party thanks to members like James Craig and Fred Crawford, members who, as Irish historian Dermot Ferreter perceptively noted, had returned from fighting in the Boer War and had likely become somewhat brutalised by that experience. The likes of Craig and Crawford were not regularly listened to or consulted by the Unionist hierarchy by this point because they were individuals seen at the extremist end of the spectrum. What escalated the situation undoubtedly was the breakdown in talks between Carson and London, and the importation of German rifles to Northern Ireland for the sake of arming the newly formed Ulster Volunteer Force. The scene that could have emerged of violent, uncompromising Unionists fighting the British with German guns would have shattered the former's support base across the British Isles, To prevent this from happening, it is perhaps more helpful to judge men like Carson as equally as we would judge Redmond today. And trust me, this is not an easy thing to do with the legacy of either man. Carson did not want the situation to escalate. What he wanted was to be able to negotiate from a position of strength, with the added leverage that a group like the Ulster Volunteer Force gave him, and the urgency it imposed on London to find a solution. It helps to bear in mind at this point that the island of Ireland was divided religiously between Catholic and Protestant, an inheritance of the British system of rule over the centuries, but one which had become engendered into Irish identity by this point as well. Religion remained a central aspect of many Catholics' lives, as it did for many Catholics on the continent, though rates would be falling faster there. Protestant Unionist fears had been stoked over the years by the resurgence in Irish cultural and linguistic teachings, while perceptions about those in rural communities and how they would control the likes of the Harland and Wolfe shipyard if they ever gained mastery of a Dublin parliament that imposed its laws on the whole of Ireland was an additional historically underrated fear. Part of the historical process is seeing situations like these in their context. Right now we may feel as though the Unionist fears were unfounded, that of course they would have had freedom within a Catholic-dominated parliament in Dublin, and that of course their old ways of life would not be threatened. Hindsight, for us, gives us this certainty because we look at the era through our modern lens, and we also feel that because it would have been the morally right thing to do nowadays that it should have happened. Unionists in the tense times of 1912-14 to 14 possessed none of these certainties, so while it is easy for us to claim that they should have known better, or acted less militantly, or been more conciliatory, we have to accept the flawed individuals of the era as they were. And that goes for both sides. Dermot Ferreter claimed that our period of analysis for this episode, 1912-14 to 14 or so, was essentially about a relentless two-year advertising campaign that left no stone unturned, no pole unadorned, and no tree unclimbed. It is a fitting description, for while the militias marched in both communities, the hierarchies at the top of them accepted that it was through words rather than extreme deeds that the real negotiations and progress would be seen. Far more time was spent developing the Unionist message and disseminating it to the eager recipients than was spent planning on how to launch a civil war, and it is important to clarify that extremist rhetoric on either side did not equate to action. Leaders in both camps were not so intolerant of diplomacy that they spurned opportunities to talk it out. This was why Carson and Redmond were in London in July 1914, just as the European situation famously pulled Britain's attention away from its troublesome island neighbour it would have been the antithesis of either man's character or ethos to allow the situation to come to blows. Despite this, it should go without saying that, just as surely as elements within the Unionist organisations existed that operated outside of Carson's control, so too did Redmond have to admit that one organisation in particular, the Fenians and the Irish Republican Brotherhood, continued to evade the persuasions of his better judgment and principles. In March 1912, a good few months before the situation in Ireland had so escalated with the formation of the two armed camps, a kind of rally was held by nationalists of every persuasion in Dublin. At the rally, men like Patrick Pearce, Owen MacNeill and the Ancient Order of Hibernians leader, Joseph Devlin, addressed the crowd. All warned of the necessity of implementing Home Rule, and indeed the third Home Rule Bill would be presented in Westminster the following month by Redmond's Irish Parliamentary Party, but the language that each man used was slightly different. Pearce issued a warning during his speeches that let the English understand that if we are again betrayed there shall be red war throughout Ireland. Though a senior Dublin Castle figure stated in 1912 that the IRB was now merely a shadow of a once terrifying name, were in fact becoming more active thanks in part to the rejuvenation that cultural movements like the Gaelic League and the Gaelic Athletic Association had brought. The small circle of elderly Republicans that constituted the leadership of the Irish Republican Brotherhood would in time be replaced but at this stage it was mostly up to Tom Clark under instructions from John Devoy in the United States to take advantage of whatever opportunities presented themselves to infiltrate organisations like the Gaelic League, Sinn Féin, the Ancient Order of Hibernians, and the Gaelic Athletic Association. In the months before the Irish Volunteers had been formed, Tom Clark's circle continued to bide their time, recruiting from Ireland's cultural scene and taking advantage of the impatience and anger felt by many nationalists over the slowing of the Home Rule Bill. Also in attendance in this March 1912 meeting was Arthur Griffith, there to represent his smaller Sinn Féin party, towards which the Irish Republican Brotherhood was mostly hostile, but had since tried to infiltrate as well. In the months that followed Griffith would come out in support of the Irish Volunteers and Home Rule, seeing the former as an important source of leverage to pressure London into fulfilling their promises. Despite his newfound support for home rule, after being so disenchanted with the idea in the past, his party continued to tread the Third Way option, professing a desire to inculcate the Cultural Revolution brought about by organisations like the Gaelic League, while on the other hand emphasising the dual monarchy option, to both maintain the commercial links of the British Isles and please the Unionists. At the first official meeting of the Irish Volunteers in December 1913, Republicans like Tom Clarke refrained from making an appearance, since they feared that their profile would detract from the organization's image and actually make it appear more radical than it was. The traditional practice undertaken by the Irish Republican Brotherhood had always been to infiltrate new groupings when they emerged. We saw this with the Land League, with Parnell's other groups, and then with the Revivalist organizations like the GAA and the Gaelic League, and even the Irish Parliamentary Party. This strategy meant that a pillar within apparently moderate organizations could in time radicalize the entire group. Or at least, that was the idea. The plan being that the British would see groups like the GAA or Gaelic League as harmless, when in reality they would be operating as a front for Irish Republican Brotherhood activities and influences. In practice, the actual impact of the IRB's infiltration never reached as far as they imagined and was never as effective. In fact, it was far more unwieldy than the small hierarchy of the Irish Republican Brotherhood had intended. It would be wrong to present the Irish Republican Brotherhood as having fingers in every pie, but they certainly professed a desire in their manifestos to achieve this however realistic it was. By late 1913, a number of significant changes had occurred in Ireland. One of the most notable of these changes had occurred within an individual who, up to this point, we've somewhat avoided giving a proper analysis of, despite the fact that today, in Ireland, he represents the most instantly recognisable figure of the 1916 Rising, and in a sense represents all that it stood for with all of its fears, dreams, ambitions, and contradictions on show. The time has come, history friends, to talk about Patrick Pearce. Patrick Henry Pearce was one of 16 men to be executed for participating in the 1916 Rising. Yet despite being one of 16, it is his profile, his name, and his beliefs that are often alluded to before any other. The image of him as the man who, with shaking hands and a small voice, first read out the words of the Proclamation of the Irish Republic on the 24th of April 1916, is as iconic as it is peculiar. It was Pearse himself who, writing about his upbringing in his unfinished autobiography, claimed that his comfortable upbringing and mixed national parentage led him to become an Irish rebel or republican only to cross these words out and replace them with the conviction that his upbringing had instead made him into the strange thing I am. It was his upbringing that nonetheless is looked to by historians to explain the nature of Pierce's persona. One of the major reasons Pierce is seen as the face of the rising today is because that is the legacy he left us. Mounds of materials and diary entries, articles, plays, all testified to his belief systems and ambition. In contrast to the likes of Thomas Clarke, an old Fenian mostly airbrushed out of the Rising in general, or James Connolly, a Marxist National Socialist, too ridden with contradictory beliefs for some to hold lasting appeal, Pierce was straightforward. He was a revolutionary, a rebel who sacrificed himself for Ireland. Yet, as we have just clarified, the truth was more complex Born in Dublin to an Irish mother and an English father, Pierce grew up on the street in Dublin which now bears his name. His father's masonry business took off when Pierce was young, and this increase in wealth enabled him to enjoy the trappings of the Victorian middle class, an experience Pierce seems to have relished. His father was quite a learned man and possessed a great number of books which the young Patrick Pierce soon devoured, favouring folklore and old Irish legends above all. It was his mother's side though that had the most impact since she came from a family of native Irish speakers and this ensured Pierce was virtually bathed in the language from a young age. He soon adopted both his mother and his father's best qualities. From an early age he was determined to join the Gaelic League and at the ripe age of 23 began writing for that organisation's newspaper on Clive Sullish, the Sword of Light. Peirce soon became a passionate advocate for the reforming of how the youth of Ireland were educated. He saw the British education system as stifling the creativity, individualism and personality of the young, and making a select few into civil servants rather than actually cultivating the talents, ingenuity and idiosyncrasies that they did possess. This was a point alluded to by Dermot Ferriter who wrote about Pierce that, His writings on blood sacrifice have been given undue prominence to the detriment of his work as an educationalist, and as yet another nationalist who was utterly engaged with a sense of mission about not just political but cultural awaking, and who, like James Connolly, looked to both past and future. So two sides to the man did exist, that much is clear. The difficulty in history is making sure that his mostly unseen side gets the attention it deserves in the interest of accuracy and fairness. It is difficult sometimes to give the scholarly side of Patrick Pierce its due time because, in my opinion, it was not the educational aspect of Ireland that he actively reformed. He didn't launch a new organisation or group together with like-minded gales and form some kind of pressure group, though he did found his own school. Instead, he he jumped way ahead in the radicalism spectrum and launched a revolt against British rule. This sudden transportation in Pierce's character, from one of moderatism to extremism, is one which historians continue to be both fascinated and puzzled by. It also makes it harder for me to personally identify with him, particularly with the way people go on about him in Ireland these days, you'd swear he was a role model for all. His ideas for education are something I can identify with, and in a way I wish he had acted differently in this period, and that he was known today as merely a great educational reformer rather than for the other things. Early 20th century Ireland really could have used someone like him, working away in the civil service, striving to make the country educate its young more effectively and compellingly. Arguably today we are still in need of a great number of reforms in how the Irish language is taught, and don't even get me started on how its history is taught. As someone with an ambition to teach history in life, it is hard to see that evident passion in another human being, such as Patrick Pierce going to waste, because he chose to invest more time in less sympathetic, at least in my opinion, endeavours. In any case, Pierce was an educationalist, determined to revive Irish cultural, linguistic and historical pride in its past. To do this, he had actually founded his own Irish-speaking school for boys called St. Enda's in Dublin. The school makes sense in light of his ambitions in 1907 to reform Ireland from the ground up and remodel it in a more Gaelic image. Pierce was not the only individual that wished to do this. He would have received hearty support from his friends in the Gaelic League where he had made his mark, and indeed he took much of his teaching staff from his old circles there. Pierce then capitalised on the success of movements like the Gaelic League and Gaelic Athletic Association by presenting his school as the beginnings of the new alternative in Irish education, of the educational revolution that he wished to bring about. He had said as early as 1903, Take up the Irish problem at what point you may, you inevitably find yourself back at the education question. He was a scholar, and at his heart, I think there was a genuine desire for him to change how Ireland taught its people. But to do this, he recognised that Ireland needed more legislative independence, and this was what drew him towards the nationalist movements with such a passionate fervour. In my view, where individuals like John Redmond saw the Irish Parliamentary Party as a vehicle for Home Rule, Pearce saw Home Rule as a vehicle to implement the kind of education system he wanted. It's a rarely stated side of Pierce, but to appreciate his profile in full, we do need to examine all sides of it. With that in mind, we have to find a way to explain how Pierce became steadily more radical after founding his school in 1907, to the point that he was willing to die in front of a British firing squad for his part in the Rising, and a considerable part at that, since he had been one of the seven signees of the Proclamation of the Republic that he was to read out. As I said, this is where historians normally diverge in opinion. Some uphold that since his birth he was only becoming more revolutionary, while others insist that certain key moments provided the impetus for his radicalization. In the case of the latter group of historians, the creation of St. Enda's school was a critical moment in Pierce's life, because at the age of 27, he was a headmaster of a large school on an expensive property, which only grew more expensive as he moved its premises to a place called Hermitage in Rathfarnham, South Dublin. The location was idyllic and did fit with Pierce's vision for the location of the Educational Revolution, but it was to cost him dearly financially. From the moment he founded his school, Pierce began to accumulate debts that he would never be able to pay back. This probably led him to become more fatalistic, as well as more desperate for funding from other sources. In a series of interviews conducted with former pupils of St. Enda's, recorded in time for the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising in 1966, the consensus was that Pierce was prone to making often sudden proclamations of the need for violence in politics and of the importance of sacrifice. It'll all end in a revolution, he was recorded to have said on one occasion during a history class. Pierce's belief in the importance of sacrifice and his somewhat morbid personality are another aspect of the man's character, and something which historians have traced from his childhood, when the young Pierce developed a fascination with the legends of old such as Cú and their message of sacrifice for the good of the nation that were found within. One documentary I've located on YouTube entitled Patrick Pierce Fanatical Heart, even describes the young Pierce detailing his wishes to be crucified and tortured in the name of the nation, while other kids just wanted to be superheroes. It seems fantastical, too over the top to be true. And yet, if we compare it with the rest of his character and what he went on to do, it does make sense. At one prize-giving for a poetry competition in the school, the winning pupil was not awarded a book by Pierce, but a rifle. For Pierce, literature itself remained a critical escape from the realities of his indebted life. He continued to devour countless books and held on to the old obsessions of his younger days, when he had learned Peter Pan off by heart and To die would be an awfully big adventure, was one of his favourite phrases of that tale. As well as reading, Pierce's writings for the Gaelic League's newspaper intensified. By the time of his death, he would have written a quarter of a million words for it but he also wrote pamphlets and even plays of his own. With titles like The Ritual Nation, The Sovereign People and, and The Separatist Ideal, to us it is easy now to see a pattern of radicalization within a man that only grew more intense by the day. But what was the end goal? To Pierce, the end goal was sacrifice for a better Ireland, but this was in stark contrast to his declarations against violence and his hatred of books or plays that glorified violence. And considering the era Pierce grew up in, he would have been surrounded by books of European origins, arguing for the pursuit and necessity of violence or the cleansing power a war would grant. It would be naive for us to suggest that Pierce only drew inspiration from Irish works. He would certainly have been in tune with whatever literary works the continent churned out. That would have been part of his profession as a scholar as much as it would have been part of his passion as a man. This is an important theme which I will get back to in future episodes. The era of before the First World War and the war period itself are one of mass brutalization of all European discourses, as well as a devaluing of the human life in the name of the ideal. It would be careless if we simply discount influences like these on Patrick Pearce and his eventual Irish Republican Brotherhood colleagues, or claim that they could not have had any impact on them because they did not come from Irish sources movements like the ones Pierce joined drew inspiration from examples that had come before them. The Gaelic League was not the first linguistic revivalist movement, just as surely as the Irish Republican Brotherhood and Fenians were not the first separatist organisations. We cannot know for sure the impact of movements of the continent or how much Pierce and his allies looked into them, but I think it is worth considering the possibility With separatist organizations on the continent shrouded in ritualism and secrecy, warring against the fabric of an empire and upholding a blood sacrifice ideology for the good of the nation, it should come as little surprise that we're able to see traits in common between the Irish Republican Brotherhood and Serbia's black hand, for instance. It is what I would call a pin moment, in that we shouldn't look too much into it for the moment, and should just put a pin in the idea and move on with the story. But it is worth bearing in mind, I feel, that the Irish Republican Brotherhood wasn't the only group of its kind in the world. In the atmosphere of political tension following the establishment of the Ulster Volunteer Force in spring 1913, Pierce began to see the political process being usurped by violence as a common theme replicated in Northern Ireland as much as in Ireland's history. It was, in his mind, merely a case of Irish history repeating itself. Every generation since the foundation of Britain's hold in Ireland, in the 1590s, the 1640s, the 1690s, 1798, 1803, 1848, 1867, Irish men had fought to free themselves from British rule by violence. Pearse in early 1913 was not at that stage just yet. He continued to build up a repertoire of pamphlets and materials historians would later deem war propaganda, But there is reason to suggest that before Pierce's dramatic, total conversion to physical force republicanism, these works could be seen as an outlet for his suppressed ability to actually sacrifice himself for Ireland, rather than as evidence that he always intended to die for his country. Pierce's life experiences, his youthful obsession with sacrifice, his passion for the Irish language, his interest in Ireland's culture, his contradictory stance on violence and his increasing investment in his school, all led him to attend the first meeting of the Irish Volunteers in December 1913. While there, he was connected to Bulmer Hobson, an IRB member and himself a passionate reader of the Irish language. Drawn to Pierce's passion and charisma, and sympathetic to his financial woes, Hobson suggested that Pierce make use of the huge interest in his work that would certainly exist in the United States, where Irish expatriates would undoubtedly love to hear about his school's progress. Pierce caught on to the idea, and in February 1914, he would travel to America's east coast for a speaking and lecture tour. He would leave Ireland, in his own words, a scholar, but he would return a revolutionary. So, in this episode, we have covered, in more depth, the relationship between Unionists and the Nationalists, as well as examined for the first time a profile of Patrick Pierce that will set us up well for the future. I think a kind of default theme for this mini-series is that it is a story of people. The fears, the dreams, the ambitions, however unrealistic that they had. To do justice to the story, we have to cover these individuals as objectively as possible. Not just for the sake of historical fairness, but also so that you get a better grasp of what's going on in the period. We simply can't, as I'm sure you've gathered by now, pluck 1916 out of the sky like so many of my peers are wont to do, and uphold it as a vintage piece of Irishness. We fool ourselves if we think that there's nothing more to the story, and that story has got a lot more to show us, so I hope you'll stay tuned. Thanks for listening and I'll see you guys soon.